0: I remember one day I woke up to 50 messages and 60 missed calls. It was just constant. Emails, Facebook, text messages, voicemails, blocking and deleting him didn't seem to work. There was always a new account that popped up, a new phone number that he was messaging me from.
1: Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project
2: Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
1: This is, I guess, kind of a very special episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. And we want to begin with a little bit of a trigger warning. What follows is a discussion of sexual assault and sexual harassment and the reporting process that our guests have gone through. And we just want to say that all. The bad because if there's anybody out there, I'm sure we will have some listeners who have who've had similar experiences. Just the fact of, of discussing these
2: matters can be can be triggering. So we just want to let you know. So we have three amazing guests today. Uh, they are all either current Windsor law students or, in in one case, a, a Windsor grad. And each of them is going to talk about their experience of reporting sexual assault or sexual harassment to police. And it's especially impressive, I think, that they're doing so openly. There's no anonymity here. So first of all, uh, Hannah Kirchick, who's a joint law and social work student now at Windsor. Hannah has actually spoken out in the past about what happened when she reported sexual assault to police, and we're going to include the link to her Globe and Mail video on the website. Hannah has also testified to the Federal Status of Women Committee in 2016 while she was still completing her social work degree at Ryerson, and we'll put that link up too. Our second guest is Irina Roska, who is a Windsor grad who now practices law with Montfortin and Partners. She articled in Toronto and then Irina came back to Windsor. And Irina, I have worked with as a research assistant. She was also in my dispute resolution class when she was a student, which was where I first found out about her experience of harassment by an ex-boyfriend and how she struggled with trying to get the police to take that seriously. And our third guest... Is Sherlene Chung, a Windsor 2L, and also a member of the National Executive of Students for Consent Culture Canada, which is a student organization across the country on uh, campuses looking to try to improve people's understanding of what consent means in sexual relationships. Sherlene, I talked to just as she was completing the Northwest Territories clerkship, and she came to Windsor previously from the University of Ontario Institute of Technology with an undergrad in legal studies. She too has spoken out in the past and in particular she's talked about how her undergraduate institution dealt uh, inadequately with her complaints against them and we'll also put that up on the website.
3: So good morning, Hannah and Irina. Thank you so much for being willing to talk to me this morning. I'm very excited about doing this podcast with you, not least because you are so willing to be open about your experience, which I think a lot of the people listening will be able to relate to. So I'd like to begin by asking each of you to take a moment, and maybe we'll start with you, Irina. Why did you decide that you would report what was happening to you the police
0: for me going to the police was kind of a last resort because i just didn't know what else to do
3: for those listening what was this person doing that you felt you needed to stop them doing
0: after i made the decision to break up with them we had been in a toxic relationship for years and years there was a lot of going back and forth and unsuccessful attempts at leaving you know, with the help of friends and family, I was finally able to break it off and stay away. But my ex didn't want to take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. So a campaign of terror started. That's how I think of it. And that's how how I describe it to people. I remember one day I woke up to 50 messages and 60 missed calls. It was just constant. Right. Emails, Facebook, text messages, voicemails, right. blocking and deleting him didn't seem to work. There was always a new account that popped up, a new phone number that right. he was messaging me from
3: so i would it be, would it be fair to say that this was harassment? you've described it as a campaign of of terror, it was harassment, an online harassment.
0: I am convinced that even though the law does not describe it as harassment, I am convinced that it was harassment. I made it clear to this individual that I did not want to speak to them anymore. They should not contact me anymore. That but was they didn't it. take no
3: for an answer. So when you took this to the police, you were asking the police to help you protect yourself against this individual, but as you said, not in a traditional Threat to your life or property, way
0: right, correct? Right.
3: So, so Hannah, could could I invite you to say a little bit about what happened to you and why you decided to report it to the police?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, I was sexually assaulted by someone that I knew in my first year of university, and I reported to the police because some friends had similar experiences, but were very hesitant about going to the police at the time. I was really concerned for my safety. Uh, after it had happened. yeah. But I think that the main reason why I wanted to go to the police was because I grew up believing that the purpose of the police
3: was to protect the
4: right. public. Yeah. And um, I, I now know, reflecting, that that was a really privileged place to be, had space to be, to have that belief. Um, mm. And I recognize that a lot of friends that I was speaking to at the time that were hesitant about going to the police for racialized women right. yes. or a trans yes. woman that yes. I had been communicating with. And that the reason why there was hesitation was because they had experience of violence from the police. They, yeah. they weren't confident that they would be protected. And I recognized that as a white woman, I had this assumption that right. like, oh, this happened to me. I'm scared for my safety. And now before I go to the police. The, the yeah. next
3: thing is yeah. go
4: to the police and I will be protected through this.
3: Irina, can we come back to you? You were taking to the police uh, a complaint that was not a, well, certainly wasn't a uh, a 20th century complaint. It was very much a 21st century complaint. And you were looking for them to do something to step in to help you stop this campaign of terror. What happened?
0: So my first interaction with the police uh, resulted in two male officers um, showing up at my house And I instantly felt like they took his side. I tried to explain to them the horror that my life had become, how I was just unable to escape this individual, given all the technology that he had at his fingertips, his invasion of privacy in hacking my email, my accounts, to Mm. see what I was up to, what I was doing. And their answer to me was something along the lines of, We'll give the guy a break. You know, you did break up with him. He's probably broken hearted. Now, it had been five months of this at this point, Julia.
3: Yep. And there are ways to express a a broken heart, aren't there? And there are other ways that are maybe not so acceptable to express broken heart. So how, how, how did you get on with trying to explain that to the police officers?
0: I tried to show them the messages. I, um, I had my accounts open. I scrolled through the probably dozens of numbers that he had contacted me from, uh, the numerous Facebook accounts that he's made,
3: mm-hmm. and they
0: just kind of shrugged it off. It, the whole interaction took about 10 minutes. They told me that they'd give him a call, and they left.
3: And was there any follow-up after that, Irina?
0: Absolutely none. I tried to call and get a report number, and I don't think a report was ever made because they didn't have me in the system. Right.
3: So, Hannah, when you took your complaint, which, as you say, you, you brought forward with, you know, maybe a kind of uh, privileged expectation that the police were there to protect you, what happened?
4: So when I initially reported I actually had a very positive experience with the police. Um, they made me feel believed when they took my statement mm. and they charged the individual and I So I think they laid that I was charges in, against you. Yeah, they they did yeah. lay charges and I was in a room with I believe two or three male detectives and all three of them made me feel believed and right. like this had happened and that it wasn't okay. The next step was to meet with the Crown Attorney and the, and the detective assigned to my case. And at that point, they had charged the individual, brought them in to the police station, and then... I was going in for the meeting with my crown attorney. And within the first few minutes of the meeting, the detective turned and looked at me and said, you know, I've seen a lot of creeps in my day, and your offender isn't a creep. And And this was
3: supposed to mean what?
4: I couldn't really understand what was going on at the time because I was so shocked yeah. at the shift in the way that I was being spoken to and the way that my case was being handled. Mm. This was something so serious and mm. and something that was impacting me every day.
3: This was an and assault so, that he'd been yeah. charged with. Yeah. yeah. So the relevance of him being a creep is, 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 is a little lost on me what did the crown attorney intervene at this
4: point yeah yeah the crown attorney agreed and i i believe that maybe like the identity of of my offender it like the the individual is white well educated i think that there's a lot of stigma surrounding maybe not even stigma but just like the perception that when a sexual assault happens you know it's the creep coming out of the bushes it's someone Mm -hmm, that you don't mm -hmm, know mm -hmm. it's this person who looks scary. And I think that this person just didn't fit that identity that the Crown Attorney and detective had kind of wanted. I was quite persistent on moving forward. I said, Mm. like, I'm not sure what the next step is. I really had no guidance on what to do. But they also told me that if I went to trial, they told me this in the meeting, that if I had went to trial and the person was acquitted, I would be flagged as a liar in the system. And so that was also like quite
5: right terrifying.
4: Right yes. But be- but because I I really didn't know much about the legal system at this point and I thought that, you know, like this had this had for sure happened to me. <laughs> So I was confident about like, well, I'm not going to be found a liar because it right. happened to me. Yeah. So I, I still want to move forward. Like I have to pursue this because it absolutely happened to me, which means that this person wouldn't be acquitted at trial. That that was my mental process yeah. at the time. They They had told me that they were going to contact that individual's lawyer and set up a court date. And I wasn't contacted for about two months after. And then I started calling and it took about six to eight months to finally get my... Detective on the phone. I demanded to speak to him, and he said, "Oh, sorry. Someone should have told you, but we dropped your case months ago." And I started crying on the phone, and he was like, "Okay, have a good day," and hung up. Oh. And that was the end of my proceeding with the
3: police and and with my case. So both of you were turned away without, uh, in different ways, but in ways that were, I think, re-traumatizing for both of you. Um, and I really do appreciate both of you being willing to talk about this publicly. And I know that it's upsetting to go back over the details of this. So, So, you know, I salute you on that. And I mm-hmm. want to move our conversation now a little bit more to you know what does this mean going forward both for you personally and also in terms of of what the law enforcement system needs to do to change so can we can we go back to you Irina, after that experience of trying to explain online harassment to the police what would you say now to someone else who is experiencing that and might be considering reporting i mean how would you advise them to take care of themselves and how to maximize their chances
0: well i actually did go back to the police two more times
3: yeah good for you so
0: i definitely want to encourage people to keep going back and keep fighting for what you know is not right i was fortunate enough to have a very positive experience with um, the second officer i spoke with now There was nothing he can do. because There was
3: nothing to be done still, yeah. There was nothing
0: to be done, but just the way that he approached the situation, the sensitivity he showed, you know, the understanding that he showed to me just made me feel heard and made me feel like I'm not the crazy one here, you know? Right.
3: What about you, Hannah? Would you still encourage someone to have your optimism that you went forward with? if they were considering going to police, what would you say to somebody who was considering doing what you did?
4: I would probably say for folks that are hoping to achieve justice through the criminal system, definitely have a support system. I was lucky enough to have an incredible support system in my family and in my friends at yeah. the time of reporting. But I also think it's important to have an advocate with you or someone who mm. knows a little bit about the process so that they can kind of prepare you for what, for what is happening. I mean, I walked into the police station not knowing that I was going to take a video statement that day, not, know, yeah. like not knowing the process. So sometimes those things can impact your confidence going in because you really don't know what is what is next. So mm-hmm. I would say if you are pursuing the criminal system, to have an advocate with you to guide you and really support you on next steps. But also I think for me, I definitely don't think I achieved access or healing through the criminal system and it took um a moment with my mentor at the time in second year to say like what is what is justice look like for you mm-hmm. outside of this system? So what I think you're
3: saying, Hannah, is yes, do it, but be ready to take care of yourself and be ready to have other ways to manage what's happening to you. Do you want do you want to add anything to that, Irena?
0: No, that's actually everything I was uh I was thinking as well.
3: I mean, I'm very struck by the fact that both of you are white, privileged, but may I also say um, extremely articulate and self-aware young women. And I'm thinking if you had such a bad time with this, and this is the point that Hannah raised earlier, others who are of color or trans or indigenous, other people are going to have a much harder time again. And I have to tell you, frankly, that there are times When I speak to people who are the victims of sexual violence, who are considering going to the police, and I find it difficult to encourage them to go. So can I maybe bring this back to you personally now, each of you, and in terms of your own activism? And and Hannah, you have already touched on this, but I'd love to hear just a minute from each of you on the, the impact this experience has had on you going forward, both you personally and uh, as as individuals who want to press for change, Irina, should we start with you? I've known about your story for some time, mm-hmm. but when you originally wrote about it for me um, and we talked about it, I know you were still very raw, and yeah. I wasn't sure when I approached you to be on the podcast whether you would actually be willing to be, you know, publicly associated with this and disclosing about this and you were very clear to me that you would. So that seems to me to be a personal impact. Do Do you want to say something about that decision?
0: Oh absolutely i can't be the only person that has gone through this. You know <laughs> well, he knows
3: that at least is and now have right <laughs>
0: right. So I just think it's important for young women to hear these stories and yeah. to realize that there is a light at the end of the tunnel yeah. for a long, long time. I felt like I was stuck. I felt like I just couldn't move forward. I was depressed. I didn't know what to do and I was fortunate enough to have a strong support system. I pursued counseling and I just focused on healing myself rather than getting this individual to stop.
3: And I think you also got to the place where you no longer felt that this was something you should feel shameful but you could be upfront about and use it as part of this debate going forward. So, Hannah, you've been, you know, increasingly since your experience, it seems very involved in speaking out about about this, um, and 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 doing that. I think to encourage other young women to speak out too. Do you want to, Do you want to say a few words about the impact of that experience on you in terms of your, yeah. your own activism?
4: Definitely. I think in terms of activism, after my experience with the police about a year after I released a video with the Globe and Mail detailing my experiences. Yep. And it's up on the
3: podcast website.
4: <laughs> it reached um j- over five million views, which was shocking. Wow. Wow. But but I think the most shocking thing was hundreds of survivors were reaching out to me on social yes. media platforms yes, telling me that they had been through the same thing with mm-hmm. the police mm-hmm. and I and I think that in that moment I could kind of declare like that it wasn't personal for me yes and that it, that this isn't an isolated event exactly. and so in some way as much as it was disheartening to know that other folks had experienced this I realized that there was a community of survivors that that were mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. through similar movements with healing not just healing from The experience of violence, but also from their experience with the police. Of
3: reporting. And being
4: turned away from an institution that is here to protect us. It does center different forms of oppression that someone's going through, can directly impact uh, their experience with the police. For example, like I've spoken with Southeast Asian women who have um, reported their experience with the police, and instead of The police undergoing an investigation of the violence they investigate, their citizenship.
3: Well, you're both very inspiring on this, and I really appreciate you talking to me today about this. Thank you both very much.
0: My pleasure.
3: Yes, thank you so much for having this
4: conversation, Julie. It's an important conversation to have.
3: Hello, Sheldene.
6: Good morning, Julie. How are you?
3: I'm good. Thank you. And thank you so much for doing this this morning. I really appreciate your willingness to speak about your experiences. So let's go directly to your experience of reporting your sexual assault to police.
6: So I reported to Windsor police in 2017 uh, while attending my first year at the university and it actually took about over a year for my detective on my case to tell me that there won't be a charge.
3: (laughs) A whole year.
6: Yep. (laughs) And over, like, the course of the 11 to 12 months, like, she told me that pretty much drunk sex is not sexual assault.
3: She she told you that drunk sex is not sexual assault?
6: Yep, even though that's a very wide-sweeping statement. And I told her that it wasn't just drunk sex, I was actually unconscious. And my assailant confessed over text message that I was unconscious.
3: And as you know, of course, as a law student, that it is still necessary to get consent even when somebody is drunk, let alone unconscious, when it's obviously impossible. So could you go back a little bit to the beginning here, Shirlina? And, you know, tell me what it was like when you very first went in and reported. How were you treated? How were you responded to?
6: uh, It was very difficult, like, deciding to even go to Windsor Police. I know that I was not a typical, perfect victim, to say the least, reporting to the police. So I knew the cards were stacked against me.
3: So tell me what that means. What does it mean to be, why do we have to have a perfect victim? What would that look like?
6: Well, as a woman of color, I definitely felt like that was going to be against me automatically. My detective was a white woman on the force.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, My Mm -hmm. assailant
6: was a white male varsity athlete. So that in and of itself, the overall process was was really bad. It was traumatic. It was extremely hurtful. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I felt neglected during the investigation. There was insensitive remarks. There wasn't any proactive communication on her end, And so on top of that, with the insensitive comments, it really shamed me into believing that I shouldn't have even come forward knowing that I wasn't that typical victim' profile. And
3: you had to I'm assuming, from what you said, Shalini, you had to reach out to them as this 11, 12 months went along, and you were trying to find out what was yes. happening. They didn't communicate with you. Did you, at any point during that time, feel like, you know, I'm just going to give up? This is too hard, constantly going back and asking somebody to tell me what's going on?
6: Oh, yes. After I recorded and I did my interview, I felt like she didn't even believe me in the outset. She yeah. kind of looked at me like I was a suspect. Why didn't I report sooner? That was often something she kept on reiterating: was that it took me so long to come to the police, and why now?
3: And do you want to say something about that, Shirlene? Because I think it's such a widespread misunderstanding about why there is always, virtually always, a delay in people coming forward?
6: For sure. Like, I believe definitely survivors who are coming forward, they need a process, and trauma does do numbers on a person. So the way an individual will experience the trauma and process it, it has to be on their own time, and sometimes people don't even acknowledge what had happened is a rape or sexual assault other times especially as a woman of color that could like stem some cultural pressure so for me for instance you know I'm not this rich white lady who's coming here to say something that has happened to me and the police are going to just automatically take me seriously like no I'm someone who has cultural pressure who has Mm. a lot of pressure like family ties and culturally it's not appropriate for me as a woman to speak out about something yes. like this yes. so that worked against me and especially all those prejudices um i definitely felt that that made it worse for me
3: in your case chalene as with so many uh, of these reports the police ended up describing this case as unfounded which means that an assault took place but in their subjective judgment it's not worth prosecuting because it would be difficult to get a conviction. So that's, of course, described as not saying there was no assault. You were assaulted, but there is an insinuation here that somehow, going back to your earlier point, you're not the perfect victim.
6: It was very difficult to hear that. For me personally, I think the substandard treatment throughout the 11 to 12 months, for instance, was something that took... I would say I actually felt worse than the actual assault, especially as someone who was told that the police was supposed to be there for the community, is supposed to serve and protect. Yes. Yes. And I felt that as soon as she told me, you know what, like, we're not even going to lay a charge, um, that really hit me. And yeah. I think that has impeded my process of healing and accepting yes. what had happened to me.
3: Yes. And it's described by so many women as the second assault, the experience of going through trying to report. Here's a hard question, because I know that you are very active in your advocacy for sexual assault and rape victims, and that these issues are very important to you. But would you tell another woman, and maybe in particular a woman of color like yourself, to report to police?
6: be honest, I've actually had a few survivors come forward and be like, Hey, <laughs> like what should I do? Yeah. And it's unfortunate that I have to tell them I would not report it. It's it's not worth it. It stalled my my process of, like I said, healing, mm-hmm. comprehending what has happened. I felt so much shame around my sexual assault already and then the added, mm-hmm. like you said, that second assault was what really broke the camel's back yeah you know there i've lost count of how many times i've broken down and found myself like engulfed in fear like rage shame and self-loathing especially so during
3: the thank you very much for your frankness about this shirlene no, and you. you know that we are all pulling for you with your own recovery thank you
6: thank you thank you so much julie
1: So I want to say right off the bat how impressive, obviously, these three women are. And really just we have to commend their courage in being willing to speak out on this issue. Yes. Because as we as we know in our culture, it's not always an easy road no. to speak out.
2: No, and I did um, offer each of them the opportunity to describe their story anonymously. And each of them was very clear that they wanted to be identified.
1: There's a lot to unpack here. These were <laughs> two is. really excellent conversations and really I mean as I was listening they were heartbreaking they were inspiring I also just have to say it's really it's frustrating that we're still that it's 2019 and And we're still still in this place yeah Yeah. and that it's this bad Mm.
2: for people still
1: to report sexual assaults let alone the fact that you know the amount of sexual assault and harassment that is that is still happening across the world but
2: taking Irina and Hannah first this bad for two white highly educated women women yeah. who would self-describe as having a lot of privilege if it's this bad for them.
1: Yes, which goes right to our first point. I found it so interesting comparing the experiences and the expectations of Hannah and Irina versus Charlene. And Hannah actually spoke about this, that she had this kind of naïve feeling that like the police are there to help us and support us and we can go with our problems and and, And they'll help. Yes. And they'll help. And of course my matter will be taken seriously Mm. and this guy will have the law come down on him because he did something wrong and that's just the way it works. Whereas, of course, Charlene Mm. said specifically... Went in much
2: more sceptical.
1: Yeah, which is interesting because Hannah said that exact thing about as she, you know, um, after this had happened, she spoke to more victims and particularly other victims who were women of colour about their experiences and realised that she was coming from a position of privilege, even assuming in the beginning that the police would be helpful, whereas Charlene had a hard time even deciding in the first place to go to police because right. she sadly knew from cultural experience that she wasn't necessarily going to have a good experience doing that. Exactly.
2: And, you know, all three of them are also women who are probably more articulate than many in standing up for themselves and their own interests. So, again, if it's this hard for them. I think you and I, Dana, were also both very struck by uh, the comments mm. of the wonderful Bronte yes. shout out to Bronte yes, Petrick our, Bronte. our sound editor um, who's been working with us now for, for a year, a little bit more than more a year. More than a year now, yeah. And you know, does sometimes give us a little bit of feedback mm-hmm. on, uh, on the interviews. She was very clear that she wanted to say how much these had affected her, these stories, how depressing it was for the same reasons that you expect to be able to go to the police and be taken care of. The
1: second thing that we wanted to discuss here is the idea of the second assault, as you yes. as you brought up within the conversation with Hannah and Irina, that um, <laughs> it's bad enough, of course, that somebody goes through an experience like these women went through in the first place, but then to you know go to the police to muster up your courage to do that in the hope that something that justice would be served, right. and then to experience what. Exactly, amounts to, as um, I forget, I think it was Charlene said, it it was worse, actually, than the original assault, which is shocking and horrifying. Yes,
2: yes. It's it's a form of Mm re-victimization. And there's increasingly work being done on this. Uh, You know, there's this concept of institutional betrayal that's been written about by a number of people now, including most prominently uh, a woman named Jennifer Freed. And in the context of reporting to institutions, whether that's your school, your university your church, or in this case to the police force, seeing their lack of caring and compassion Mm -hmm. and also seeing the limits that they will put on how far they will take a matter, which we saw, of course, in all three cases here, is described as betrayal. Mm -hmm. And when it's an institution that you really identify with, then obviously that is like a second assault. It reminded me, I, I think it did you too, of the the podcast we did in the first season mm-hmm. with Brady Donahue, who spoke about reporting her assault to campus police and said very clearly, it was worse than the assault to That's go right, through yeah. being then accused by campus police of false reporting, which was what happened to Brady. Mm-hmm. That one is tackling campus rape culture, which mm-hmm. we'll put the link up mm-hmm. on the podcast page.
1: And then finally, you know, we kind of, uh, there's no neat way to, to wrap this one up because it's interesting to know the difference between Irina and Hannah, you know, when you talked about, you know, what would they say to, to other victims? their attitude was very much, you know, keep, keep pushing, it. keep yeah. fighting, keep going back, don't let up, um, keep fighting. Whereas when you asked Charlene mm. what would she say? Uh, would she recommend that people report? She said, no.
2: She really couldn't. Which,
1: yeah. I, I mean, what do you say, right? It's horrible. And that, this is
2: an activist on these issues. Yeah. Because she now works as an activist. It is. It's, it's appalling. And, you know, I think that, you know, we also know that it is a practice inside the police force to deem cases as they obviously did with these three women as unfounded, mm. which doesn't mean that they are they don't believe that an assault took place, but they deem the assault to be not sufficiently consequential or difficult to prove in court, and so they're not going to do anything. But, of course, as as, uh, as a sociolog- uh, criminologist Holly Johnson points out, what does it mean when you hear the word unfounded? Well, it means you're lying, yeah. and that's clearly how people feel when they're told their case is unfounded. So I think, you know, to, just to finish, I, I just want to say to people if... This podcast has moved you, uh, and you want to get in touch. Uh, We can facilitate contact with our podcast guests, so you know we want to have that door open on this very important conversation that I know that we're going to go on having.
5: In other news, welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, an update regarding last week's story about the Ontario government's cuts to legal aid. There's been an increase in articles about what the effects of these cuts will be. This includes looking at the cost of civil justice, noting that over a three-year period, the additional cost to the healthcare system as a direct consequence of people experiencing everyday legal problems is an estimated $304 million. Consequently, there have been calls by lawyers, non-profit organizations, And the general public to reverse the cuts. There's also a petition that's been circulating and we encourage those of you concerned about access to justice to sign and distribute this call to reverse the cut of $133 million of funding to Legal Aid Ontario. You can also check out our podcast episode from last week for more information. For our second news story, Canadian Lawyer magazine published its 2019 survey of legal fees. The survey examines how lawyers across the country bill clients and found that most lawyers, 88.56%, continue to use the billable hour, although 62.7% use flat rates and 33% rely on contingency fees. The survey examines trends across the country as a whole and within individual provinces and also notes distinctions between small, mid-sized, and large law firms. We've talked about innovation and pricing models at NSRLP before, and the sticker shock that often accompanies the billable hour model. And we're hopeful that more law firms continue to innovate the way they bill their clients. For our third news story, we're thrilled that the Ontario Court of Appeal accepted arguments about access to justice, procedural fairness, and evaluating evidence in the case of Kawartha Halliburton Children's Aid Society versus MW Curve Lake First Nation and Office of the Children's Lawyer. The NSRLP had intervener status on this case and were represented by Kate Kehoe, to whom we are extremely grateful for her wonderful advocacy. The Court of Appeal decision confirms court's obligations to ensure effective parental participation in child protection cases, especially given the vulnerable circumstances of the parents. The case dealt with issues of child protection, Indigenous heritage, self-representation, and the use of summary judgments against vulnerable parties. In paragraph 80, Justice Benoto summarizes the approach to deal with such cases and includes point four, which reads as follows, quote, judicial assistance must be provided for self-represented litigants. In particular, judges must engage in managing the matter and must provide assistance in accordance with the principles set out in the Statement of Principles on Self-Represented Litigants and Accused Persons established by the Canadian Judicial Council." We've linked to a Twitter thread by Kate Kehoe which outlines some of the other important results of this case. Be sure to take a look at this Ontario Court of Appeal decision which will hopefully result in more meaningful access to justice moving forward. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with Nancy Merrill, the president of the BC Law Society, talking about paralegals, pro bono services, and more.